cover the sort of the middle section and my how intricate is it uh, how in the world could you cover that in in one night um, how could you cover it in you know one month it would be impossible but um, as, as I was getting ready I, I jumped in and listened to uh, the Bible project and he just does a great job of, of giving you an overview of what's going on in that middle section and so I'm not proud uh, if a guy can do a better job than me, uh, I think we ought to just go ahead and let him do it. And so I, I am going to make a couple of applications uh, when we get finished. Uh, but really pay close attention and specifically pay close attention to his idea that the, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, they're all retelling the same situation and also pay attention to what he sees as the beast uh, and the whore of Babylon now I'm not saying that this is all that it is but it is at least this period in the discussion it's at least this uh, and if you want to make it more you're you're more than welcome to do that but uh, I, I fear to go much further uh, so we're going to listen to this and unfortunately, we're having a few technical problems, so it will probably only be on one screen. Uh, but I think you can see it pretty well. If you can't, move so you can. And uh, then uh, when we get finished, we're going to come back and, and make a couple of applications. So Isaac, thank you. Um, what, what, roll the camera or uh, turn the video on. <laughs> Book of the Revelation of Jesus. The author of this book, which is not called Revelations, by the way, is named at the beginning. It was written by John, which could refer to the beloved disciple who wrote the gospel and the letters of John, or it could be a different John, a messianic Jewish prophet who traveled about and taught in the early church. Whichever John it was, he makes clear in the opening paragraph what kind of book he has written. He calls it, first of all, a revelation or apocalypse. The Greek word is apokalypsis, and it refers to a type of literature very familiar to John's readers from the Hebrew scriptures and from other popular Jewish texts. Apocalypses recounted a prophet's symbolic dreams and visions that revealed God's heavenly perspective on history and current events so that the present could be viewed in light of history's final outcome. And John says this apocalypse is a prophecy, which means it's a word from God spoken through a prophet to God's people, usually to warn or comfort them in a time of crisis. By calling this book a prophecy, John's saying that it stands in the tradition of the biblical prophets and is bringing their message to a climax. And this apocalyptic prophecy was sent to real people that John knew. The book opens and closes as a circular letter that was sent to seven churches in the ancient Roman province of Asia. Now, seven is a meaningful number for John. It's a symbol of completeness based on the seven-day Sabbath cycle in the Old Testament. And John has woven sevens into every single part of this book. Now, with this opening, John has given us clear guidance about how he wants us to understand this book. Jewish apocalypse is communicated through symbolic imagery and numbers. It is not a secret predictive code about the timing of the end of the world. Rather, John is constantly using these symbols that are drawn from the Old Testament, and he expects his readers to go discover what the symbols mean by looking up the text he's alluding to. 
Also, the fact that it's a letter means that John is actually addressing the situation of these first century churches. And so while this book has much to say to Christians of later generations, the book's meaning must first be anchored in the historical context of John's time, place, and audience. Which brings us into the book's first section, Jesus' message to the seven churches. John was exiled on the island of Patmos, and he saw a vision of the risen Jesus, exalted as king of the world. And he was standing among seven burning lights. And John's told this is a symbol of the seven churches in Asia Minor that's been adapted from the book of the prophet Zechariah. And Jesus starts addressing the specific problems that face each church. Some were apathetic due to wealth and affluence. Others were morally compromised. Their people were still eating ritual meals and sleeping around in pagan temples. But others among the churches remained faithful to Jesus, and they were suffering harassment and even violent persecution. And Jesus warns that things are going to get worse. A tribulation is upon the churches that will force them to choose between compromise or faithfulness. By John's day, the murder of Christians by the Roman Emperor Nero was passed, and the persecution of Christians by Emperor Domitian was likely underway. And so the temptation was to deny Jesus, either to avoid persecution or simply to join the spirit of the Roman age. And Jesus calls them to faithfulness so that they can overcome or literally conquer. And Jesus promises a reward for everyone in these churches who does conquer. Each reward is drawn directly from the book's final vision about the marriage of heaven and earth. And so this opening section, it sets up the main plot tension that will drive the storyline in this book. Will Jesus' people endure? Will they inherit the new world that God has in store? And why is faithfulness to Jesus described as conquering? The rest of the book is John's answer. After this, John has a vision of God's heavenly throne room, and he describes it with imagery drawn from many Old Testament prophets. Surrounding God are creatures and elders that represent all creation and human nations, and they're giving honor and allegiance to the one true creator God who is holy, holy, holy. In God's hand is a scroll that's closed up with seven wax seals. It symbolizes the message of the Old Testament prophets and the sealed scroll of Daniel's visions. These are all about how God's kingdom will come here fully on earth as in heaven. But it turns out no one is able to open the scroll until John hears of someone who can. It's the lion from the tribe of Judah and the root of David. He can open it. These are classic Old Testament descriptions of the messianic king who would bring God's kingdom through military conquest. Now, that's what John hears. But then what he turns and sees is not an aggressive lion king, but a sacrificed bloody lamb who's alive, standing there, and ready to open the scroll. Now, this symbol of Jesus as the slain lamb, this is crucially important for understanding the book. John's saying that the Old Testament promise of God's future victorious kingdom was inaugurated through the crucified Messiah. Jesus overcame his enemies by dying for them as the true Passover lamb so that they could be redeemed. Because of the resurrection, Jesus' death on the cross was not a defeat. It was his enthronement. It was the way he conquered evil. And so this vision concludes with the lamb alongside the one sitting on the throne. And together they are worshipped as the one true creator and redeemer. And the slain lamb begins to open the scroll. It's a symbol of his divine authority to guide history to its conclusion. 
Which brings us to the next section of the book, the three cycles of seven. Seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And each cycle depicts God's kingdom and justice coming here on earth as in heaven. Now, some people think that the three sets of seven divine judgments represent a literal linear sequence of events that either happened in the past or could be happening now or are yet to happen in the future when Jesus returns. But notice how John has woven all the sevens together. So the final seven bowls come out of the seventh trumpet and the seventh seal. And the seven trumpets emerge from the seventh seal. They're like nesting dolls. Each seventh contains the next seven. Also notice how each of the series of seven culminates in the final judgment and they have matching conclusions. So it's more likely that John is using each set of seven to depict the same period of time between Jesus' resurrection and future return from three different perspectives. So the slain lamb begins to open the scroll's first four seals. And John sees four horsemen. It's an image from the book of Zechariah chapter 1. And they symbolize times of war, conquest, famine, and death. In other words, a tragically average day in human history. Then the fifth seal depicts the murdered Christian martyrs before God's heavenly throne. And the cry of their innocent blood rises up before God like smoke from the altar of incense. And they're told to rest because more Christians are yet to die. We're not told why, but we are told that it won't last forever. The sixth seal is God's ultimate response to their cry. He brings the great day of the Lord that was described in Isaiah and Joel. And the people of the earth cry out, who is able to stand? And then all of a sudden, John pauses the action with an intermission to answer that question. John sees an angel with a signet ring coming to place a mark of protection on God's servants who are enduring all this hardship. And he hears the number of those who are sealed, 144,000. It's a military census, like the one in the book of Numbers, chapter 1. There are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, pay attention. The number of this army is what John heard, just like he heard about the conquering lion of Judah. But in both cases, what he then turned and saw was the surprising fulfillment of those military images in Jesus, the slain lamb. So when he sees this messianic army of God's kingdom, it's made up of people from all nations, fulfilling God's ancient promise to Abraham. It's this multi-ethnic army of the lamb who can stand before God because they've been redeemed by the lamb's blood. And now they are called to conquer, not by killing their enemies, but by suffering and bearing witness just like the lamb. After this, the seventh and final seal is broken. But before the scroll is opened, the seven warning trumpets emerge and fire is taken from the incense altar. It symbolizes the cry of the martyrs and it's cast onto the earth, bringing the day of the Lord to its completion. Now, with the seven trumpets, John backs up and he retells the story again, this time with images from the Exodus story. So the first five trumpet blasts replay the plague sent upon Egypt, and then the sixth trumpet releases the four horsemen that came from the first four seals. But then John tells us that despite all these plagues, the nations did not repent, just like Pharaoh didn't in the Exodus story. So it seems that God's judgment alone will not bring people to humble repentance before him. Then John pauses the action again with another intermission. An angel brings the unsealed scroll that was opened by the lamb. And just like Ezekiel, John is told to eat the scroll and then proclaim its message to the nations. Finally, the lamb scroll is open and now we will discover how God's kingdom will come here on earth. The scroll's content is spelled out in two symbolic visions. First, John sees God's temple and the martyrs by the altar, and he's told to measure and set them apart. It's an image of protection taken from Zechariah chapter 2. 
But then the outer courts in the city are excluded and they get trampled down by the nations. Now some think that this refers literally to a destruction of Jerusalem that happened in the past or will happen in the future. But more likely, John's following the tradition of Jesus and the apostles who all used the new temple as a symbol for God's new covenant people. In that case, this is an image about how Jesus' followers may suffer persecution by the nations, but this external defeat cannot take away their victory through the Lamb. This idea gets expanded in the scroll's second vision. God appoints two witnesses as prophetic representatives to the nations. And once again, some people think this refers literally to two prophets who will appear one day in the future. But John calls them lampstands, which is one of his clear symbols for the churches. So this vision is more likely about the prophetic role of Jesus' followers, who are to take up the mantle of Moses and Elijah and call idolatrous nations and rulers to turn back to the one true God. But then, all of a sudden, a horrible beast appears. Let the reader remember Daniel chapter 7. And the beast conquers the witnesses and kills them. But then God brings them back to life and vindicates the witnesses before their persecutors. And the end result is that many among the nations finally do repent and give glory to the creator God in the day of the Lord. Now, stop. Think about the story so far. God's warning judgments through the seals and through the trumpets did not generate repentance among the nations, just like the Exodus plagues only hardened Pharaoh's heart. But the lamb, he conquered his enemies by loving them, dying for them. And now the message of the lamb's scroll reveals the mission of his army, the church. God's kingdom will be revealed when the nations see the church imitating the loving sacrifice of the lamb, not killing their enemies, but dying for them. It is God's mercy shown through Jesus' followers that will bring the nations to repentance. And this surprising claim is the message of the open scroll that John has placed at the exact center of the entire book. After this, the last trumpet sounds and the nations are shaken as God's kingdom comes here on earth as it is in heaven. So now we know how the church will bear witness to the nations and inherit the new creation, but who was that terrible beast that waged war on God's people? And how will the whole story turn out? John will tell us in the second half of the book of the Revelation. After the seven trumpets, John stops the drumbeat of sevens with a series of visions that he calls signs. The word literally means symbols, and these chapters are full of them. These visions explore the message of the open scroll in greater depth. The first one reveals the cosmic spiritual battle that lay behind the suffering of the seven churches under Roman persecution. It's a manifestation of that ancient conflict that began in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent who represents the source of all evil, is depicted here as a dragon. It attacks a woman and her seed. They represent the Messiah and his people. Then the Messiah defeats the dragon through his death and resurrection, and it's cast to earth. There, the dragon inspires hatred and persecution of the Messiah's people. 
but they will conquer the dragon by resisting his influence, even if it kills them. John's trying to show the churches that neither Rome nor any other nation or human is the real enemy. There are dark spiritual powers at work, and Jesus' followers will announce Jesus' victory by remaining faithful and loving their enemies just like the slain lamb. John's next vision retells the story of the same conflict, but this time in the earthly symbolism of Daniel's animal visions. John sees two beasts empowered by the dragon. One of them represents national military power that conquers through violence. The other beast symbolizes the economic propaganda machine that exalts this power as divine. And these beasts demand full allegiance from the nations, and that's symbolized by taking the mark of the beast and his number, 666, on the forehead or hand. Now, this is an infamous image, and you won't discover its meaning by reading news headlines. John's making a clear Hebrew Old Testament reference here. First of all, this mark is the anti-Shema. The writing on the forehead and hand, it's a clear reference to the Shema, an ancient Jewish prayer of allegiance to God that's found in the book of Deuteronomy. This prayer also was written on the forehead and hand as a symbol of devoting all your thoughts and actions to the one true God. But now the rebellious nations demand their own allegiance and they force everyone to decide who they will follow. Then there's the number of the beast, which has fascinated readers for thousands of years. But this was not a mystery to John. He spoke Hebrew and Greek. And Hebrew letters were also numbers. If you spell the Greek words Nero Caesar and the word beast in Hebrew, each one amounts to 666. Now, John isn't saying that Nero was the only fulfillment of this vision. Nero's just a recent example of the ancient pattern set out by Daniel, that the nations become beasts when they exalt their own power and economic security as a false god and then demand total allegiance. So Babylon was the beast in Daniel's day, but that was followed by Persia, followed by Greece, and now Rome in John's day. And so it goes for any later nation that acts in the same way. Standing opposed to the beastly nations and the dragon is another king. It's the slain lamb. He's with his army who have given their lives to follow him. And from the new Jerusalem, their song of victory goes out to the nations in what John calls the eternal gospel. And they call everyone to repent and to worship God and to come out of Babylon that will fall. Its days are numbered. Then John sees a vision of final judgment. It's symbolized by two harvests. One is a good harvest of grain as King Jesus comes to gather up his faithful people to himself. The other is a harvest of wine grapes. It represents humanity's intoxication with evil. They're taken to the wine press and trampled. Now, throughout all these sign visions, John is placing a stark choice before the seven churches. Will they resist the lure of Babylon and follow the lamb? Or will they follow the beast and suffer its defeat. Now that the choice is clear, John replays a final cycle of seven divine judgments, symbolized as pouring out seven bowls. Now we know from the Lamb's scroll and from the sign visions that many among the nations do repent. But as the Exodus plagues are repeated and poured out through the bowls, there are many people who do not repent. They resist and curse God just like Pharaoh. And so it all leads up to the sixth bowl. As the dragon and the beasts, they gather the nations together to make war against God's people in a place called Armageddon. This refers to a plain in northern Israel where many battles were fought by Israel against invading nations. And some people think that this sixth bowl refers to an actual future battle. Other people think that it's a metaphor for God's final justice on evil. Either way, John's clearly taken images from the book of Ezekiel about God's battle with 
Gog. Gog was Ezekiel's symbol of the rebellious nations gathered before God to face his justice. And that's what comes in the seventh bowl. It's the fourth and final depiction of the day of the Lord when evil is defeated among the nations once and for all. Now, John has fully unpacked the message of the Lamb's unsealed scroll. And now he goes back to expand on three key themes that he's introduced earlier. The fall of Babylon, the final battle to defeat evil, and the arrival of the new Jerusalem. And each one of these explores the final coming of God's kingdom from a different angle. So first, the fall of Babylon. An angel shows John a stunning Wow, that guy can get through the middle of Revelation and about the time it takes me to say hello. <clears throat> Did, how many of you are kind of on board as far as understanding what he said? You pretty good? All right. Um, I'm sorry if I have ruined your theory in any way. Uh, you're welcome to keep it. Um, and uh, there, there are probably some overlaps, but I think that the thing that, that, that I want to really establish is that um, if we could pull the curtain back and see right now what's going on, we're right in the middle of the bowls. We're right in the middle of the seals. And that has been going on since John's time. Since the book of Revelation was written, uh, this cycle... Of, of God dealing and, and Satan battling has been going on. Um, it was a vision that was given to John to share with seven churches. And those seven churches were facing specific things. Um, and when John spoke and when John gave them these symbols, they connected it to what was going on. Now, it's, it's really interesting if you... There's a lot of people that believe it was fulfilled. The whole thing was pretty much fulfilled at that time. And here's the argument. Was this book written before the persecution under Nero? Or was this book written after that persecution? And it's talking about the persecution under Domitian. And it's very interesting if you go read that. Because if you read it, what you will find is they take the symbols... And they make them fit as though it was written in the time that they thought it was written. So what do you think is going on there? Well, I think, I think they're both right. I think that what's going on is going on. And I think right now you could take it and you could come and you could see the symbols to see what they represent... And you could find where in the world that's going on right now. And so this constant march toward the last chapters where there is the final battle has been going on ever since then. And so what I'd like to do tonight is, first of all, I'd like to take away, I'd like to take away your telescope. And, and the telescope I want to take is this telescope that looks over into the Middle East and tries to see where this is going on. And I'd like to get us to open our eyes and see that this is going on right here, right now, around us, and we are in that battle. The second thing I'd like to take away 
is your calendar or your watch or however close you think it is and to say, no, it is right now, right here in this moment. We are in the middle of it all and we need to open our eyes and we need to live as though, uh, as though, <laughs> uh, as though Jesus is going to come back tomorrow and the, 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 the martyrdom and the, the battles are going on. You know why? Because they are. Do you realize that there is nothing that has happened in history that isn't happening now? And it can't get much worse than it is right now? And that's going to lead me in just a minute to, to the two things I want to talk about are these beasts. I want us to consider what our beasts are, how we see that symbolism and how we as Christians in the middle of the seven seals who are supposed to be the martyrs, how we should live our lives. Is that okay? Let, let, let me just ask this before, before I go on and make, make the application. How many of you all can just accept the fact how many of you all can connect with the possibility that we are in the middle of it that there's not a chronological it began in in you know maybe 60 AD and each thing's a progression the 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 seals lead to the trumpets lead to the bowls lead to the angels but John has these different visions just like there's Four Gospels, he get, gets these sets of visions that explain what's going on in the spiritual world. And so each of those sort of describe what's going on. Can, 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 you, can you grab that? Can you get your mind around that as an idea? You don't have to receive it right now, but if you can get your mind around it. And, and what makes me think it, it it's... It's probably the way it is is because my study of literature over the last few years uh, has, has really helped me see that there are perennial ideas, things that happen over and over and over again. Um, if you know anything about novels, uh, over and over and over, you read this everywhere, there are basically six plots to novels. I see Noah going, can, can you name the six plots? If you can't, I've got them written down, but if... Uh, you know, they have added a seventh one, which is defeating the monster. And I know, I know you would love that one in, in the way you write. Uh, but in a lot of the other analyses, they don't use that as one of them. But yeah, you are right. There, there is a seventh one that, that some people add on. It's going from rags to riches... It's going from riches to rags. It's a, a rise and then a fall in fortune. It's a fall, a rise, and then a fall again. It's a rise, a fall, a rise. And then there's a, a fall and a rise. So, in other words, every novel you read, it can only do so many things. Because that's the way life is. That's the way life exists. You can't imagine beyond what is really there. 
and you've heard that history repeats itself, that, that if you don't know your history, you're doomed uh, to repeat it. Why is that? It's because the way human nature exists and the way God exists and the way the devil exists, it's always going to play out over and over and over again. And so what happened in the book of Revelation is God opened up so, so John could see how it's working so that he could inform the church about how they could enter this battle and be victorious. And so I'm convinced that uh, some people may be able to date it. I don't know. I, I, I may be a little jaded, too. Um, I was raised in the 70s, and I, I can tell you exactly who the beast was and when Jesus was coming back. But I'll, I, unfortunately, I lived to the 80s. <laughs> and you know what? Uh, I, I could tell you the same thing then. And so I, 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 I don't think those people are wrong except for this. They think they have a corner on the market. They think this is the one that the Bible's talking about. No, it is one of the many that the Bible is talking about. And we'll see this go on and on and on again. And so after this will come the, the, the final battle and the day of the Lord, and we'll talk about that next week. But, but let's just stop and think. Stop and think for a minute. Are there any wars going on that you know about? How about 100,000 people, between 50 and 100,000 people that have died just in this last year in the Ukraine? A lot of Russians a long way from home. There's six other places where major wars have been going on for three or four years, and over 10,000 people have died in those wars. How many people do you think died today as a martyr? Not Christians who were in a place and they accidentally got killed or they were even killed for their money, but people who were actually sharing the gospel and because of that, they were martyred. There was over 500, over 5,500 last year. Every day, 13 people are sharing the gospel, and because they are sharing the gospel, they get killed. Right now, how many people do you believe who, who, who are on the edge of starving? And if some specific intervention doesn't happen, they will be dead by the end of the year. 750,000. Those horsemen that are released, war, Famine, destruction, it's going on in the world right now. We just don't see it. And I think that's part of the beast that we have to fight. We have to discover how, I, I believe, the, the, he explained it as two different things. It's not up there, but it's either this military power or this economic pressure. The beast that's going to culminate in this war, out of all of the turmoil, is going to be a military power backed by economic pressure. That's the symbolism of what's driving 
whatever it is in us that would keep us from being the people of God in the place that he's put us. So does that make sense? You with me so far? So what is that? What is it in our lives that we would bow our knee to rather than the lamb? What is the military power? What, what does that represent? Well, you know, if, if, if you think about it, this didn't just happen when John got his revelation. It had already been going on. Jesus was already dealing with the beast. It's just symbolized here differently. But Jesus has been dealing with it. And so where is it that you find your security? Where does it that I find my security? Where is it that I get so secure that I don't pursue the lamb? Where is it do I find my place of peace and I'm so peaceful that I forget that people are dying in wars and from famine and as martyrs? How is it that I, Billy Henderson, can live in a day when 13 of my brothers and sisters will be tortured and martyred for Jesus? When mothers are crying as they see their baby draw the last breath, how can I consume what I consume and not think about those people? What beast has gotten a hold of my mind <laughs> and caused me to live in such a way that I'm not constantly crying out to God on behalf of the brethren who are suffering in this cosmic battle that's going on. Wealth. Wealth. I think one thing to think about the symbolism of that beast is a parable that Jesus told. One wasn't a... I don't know if it was a parable or a true story. If it's a true story, I feel sorry for the guy. I hope it's a parable. But it's in Luke uh, 12, 4 through 11. And rather than, than read it, um, let's see. No, it's not that one. It's Luke 18, 24 through 25. Oh, yeah, 18, 24 through 25. This is after he has had this interaction with this young man who was very wealthy, asked the young man if he would like to uh, follow him. And uh, he says, in order to do it, you have to sell everything, give it to the poor, and follow me. And when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, how hardly shall they that have riches Enter into the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. So let me bring you up to, to where I'm trying to make this point. These things that we read about as seals, trumpets, bowls are going on. And if you could pull back the curtain, you would see it. It is, it is empowered on one side, by these two beasts. One beast is an economic power that strengthens a military power. That economic power, that dependence upon uh, the economy, and I think this, I think this somehow uh, is overlapped by uh, the whore of Babylon because she is given over to her pleasures and people are caught up 
and they are pulled in uh, to, to, to the wine of, of, of the wrath of God uh, because they participate in her pleasures. But wrapped up in wealth. Now stop and think. It is hard for you to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus was talking about following him and making disciples of other people. It's hard for you to do that because you're wealthy. <coughs> Does anybody know for sure uh, what, this, what the statistics are about where we fit in, uh, in world wealth? I believe the people in this room are in the top 1%. I'm pretty sure that's accurate. I see a couple of people going, yes. Hey, folks, we're in the top 1%. We're wealthy. And I think part of our problem is that we don't realize it. Because we have a marketing system that makes us think that we need more than what we have. Does that make sense? So if the one beast symbolizes this economic backing of a military power that promises peace, hey, folks, we got a big beast on our back. And Jesus has told us it's going to be hard for us to really enter into the kingdom. Why? Because we rest in our wealth. Now, the fact that you wish you had more money, that doesn't mean that you're not wealthy. It just means that, that the marketers are effective. <laughs> because we're well-fed, well-clothed, well-housed. And so the beast that we have got to deal with is this, this gift that God has given us. Now, let me stop and say this. If you're not wealthy tonight, go get a second job and get wealthy. We live in a place where it's possible to produce wealth. But what a great, great uh, stewardship God has given us that, that we could be wealthy and then translate that into deliverance for the martyrs, deliverance for the hungry, provision for orphans and widows. That's who we are. That's what we're supposed to be focused on. That's how we give our life for the lamb, is that we funnel all this wealth that God has given us into something that produces for the kingdom. It's a wonderful thing that we've been given. But the beast would like to make us overconsume it on ourselves. That's the one beast. The second beast, and I'll go to a parable, and it, and it just symbolizes a spirit that's behind it all, and this is the one I was going to read out of Luke 12, 4 through 11. My friends, don't be afraid of those that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom you shall fear. Fear him which after he has killed has power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings? And not one of them is forgotten before God? But even the very hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Fear not. So the other beast is this military power, this, this authority that is able to kill you, able to take your life. 
Is anybody worried about a particular army coming in and taking over your life right now? So you've got to pull the curtain back, and you've got to see how this fear of this power is manifesting in the age in which you live. And you've got to be able to undo the lies that come into your mind. So now stop and think about it. Fear. I don't want my life to be taken away from me. But what is our life? It's our day-to-day living. I don't want that to be taken. If I X, then I will lose my life. You should share the gospel with someone every day. We have amendments that guarantee our freedom to do it. They are murdered, martyred in other countries just for telling people about Jesus. And so there's this network of authority and power that somehow throws fear on top of us to tell people about Jesus. It's not like we're facing a sword. Why is it that people in other countries who are going to get killed if they share the gospel are sharing the gospel, and here we sit, afraid we might offend somebody? (laughs) It's the beast. I'm telling you, it's the beast. (laughs) And he has got us hornswoggled. And we have got to get, get out from underneath the power of fear that this beast who is orchestrating, he thinks he's orchestrating to that final battle and he's going to win because he's going to defeat us now. But we've got to get out from underneath that fear. We fear people who can take our job more than we fear God. We fear people who can reject us more than we fear God. We fear people that might overhear us talking and think bad about us more than we fear God. Some of us do. Hello. We can justify it and, and, and analyze it and do whatever we want. But if we're not sharing the gospel pretty regularly, it's because the beast has made us fearful in some way, that we're going to lose some little part of our life if we tell people about Jesus. Now, I'm not telling you to become obnoxious, but be careful. Be careful. Oh, you'll be obnoxious if you do that. Is a very good lie the enemy can use to keep us from doing it. So let me come back and make this just real simple. Pull the curtain back, and you're going to see vials, uh, bowls, trumpets, and you're going to see things going on. You're going to see wars. You're going to see uh, a world in chaos, and you're going to see Christians dying. That's going on right now. But we just have to look at our church and see who we are and where we are. We're a church that's been protected. Praise the Lord. Given my choice, that's what I would choose. We're a church that's been blessed with wealth. 
you know what? Given my choice, I don't know. I think when we were a poor church, I mean really poor, I think we were a lot happier. I even think we were a lot less fearful. But I still think I would go for being wealthy. <laughs> I don't know. You hear what I'm saying? And so these powers are at work. And the world is moving. And things are going on. And we need to get set free from those things. And we need to engage powerfully with these giftings that God's given us. I mean, amazing intelligence in this room. What resource in this room? But the beast would like to make us fearful. The beast would like to make us think we need to hang on to our wealth and have more wealth. No, we need to give it away so we can have more wealth. Do you get that? Huh? So let me give you some things that have sort of played into this, and, then, and uh, then we'll move ahead. Now, keep in mind that as we've prayed and we've fasted and we've sought God, that what we understand where we are is we love each other. We're like the church at Philadelphia. we got a good thing going on. And also, we've, we've labored, and we've persevered like the church at Ephesus. But there's one little thing. We've lost our first love. We've stepped away from the passion and the... And, and, and the, and the, the youthful, following hard after our lover, and he's calling us back to that. And I think as we go through the book of Revelation, we might be able to understand a little bit about what's going on and the fact that maybe we're getting settled in our wealth. Maybe as we're getting older, we're wanting to find a place where we can really be safe and taken care of and ride this thing out on the back porch, looking over the creek. <laughs> That's the only reason I hate to move from 777. I love to be out there and look over the creek. So, so let me tell you a few things about the culture in which we live that, that could push us in this way. And this will just take about five minutes. First, um, eight, 1685 to 1815 was called the Age of Reason. What happened in the Age of Reason? Well, people began to believe that there is no real, honest, uh, metaphysical reality that's spiritual. The only thing that exists is what you can see and what you can prove. And so the whole mindset of America has been moving away from believing in revealed truth that is, things we can know because God shows them to us. And we've become more and more and more dependent upon what can be proven. What have I touched? What have I seen? What have I measured? That's what's true. And the longer that goes on, the more we are removed from God. And the more we become a people who have to have proof rather than really walk in faith in what the Word of God says. The other thing that happened during that period of time was political revolution. 
Um, it was during uh, that age of reason that uh, the American Revolution took place, the French Revolution took place, and all of a sudden it was about these natural rights, the natural rights. And people begin to say, you know, if it's all just what we can see, then there's got to be some guiding principles that just exist because that's the way things are. For us, it's pretty simple. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. But if that gets enthroned, and you're more interested in life, in improving your life, than you are in giving your life, then we stay on this progression that causes us to live in this place of peace and wealth, thinking, well, it's my right to live like I want to. Liberty, freedom. Freedom was another enlightenment idea. It's what caused the French Revolution uh, in a way that it, it shouldn't have happened. Uh, but freedom and liberty, yeah, there's, it's good. But do we as Christians hang on to our liberty tightly so that we can use it to serve other people? Or are we continually offended when people step on our freedom? Christians were put in America with a civic freedom. Why? So we could use that as an opportunity to serve the people around us. How much do, 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 we, do we get motivated to live our lives free? Free of restraint. Free of having to go to work. Free of putting up with people we don't like. Hey, this is America we are first citizens of the kingdom of God. And that freedom that we were given was freedom from sin, which is selfishness. We live in a political freedom where we can use that freedom to serve other people. And the pursuit of happiness. Now, some people, as they go into political theory, they will connect pursuit of happiness with the pursuit of property. I don't think that's really the case, and I can, I can tell you why, but uh, do that some other time. Pursuit of happiness. Hey, I've got an extra hour. I, I just want to do something that's fun. I don't have a problem with doing stuff that's fun. It's fun. But when it becomes a god, when it becomes enthroned, when it becomes shaping. And so you have this age of reason that produces a set of rights that people think that... Uh, that that is humanity, living up to those is what it's all about. And then another thing happens, and uh, this is a 1760 to 1840. It's a thing called the Industrial Revolution. The Industrial Revolution is just where everybody came off the farm and went into town and started working in factories. That totally disrupted the relationship between men and women, husband and wife, parents and children. And now listen real close. We have not rebounded from that rearrangement of society 
to this day. Christians have not figured out how to be family and as an extension community. Because if you read the Bible and you understand what it says about husbands and wives and parents and children, you will realize that making everybody into a cog that fits in a big machine makes them less than what God intended them to be in their relationship with each other. Am I pointing my finger at any particular part of how we live our lives? No, I'm just saying. To this very day, all of America is suffering. Hey, it's, it's not a coincidence that 80 years ago, they gave up on marriage and just said, look, you can get divorced for no reason at all. They called it no-fault divorce. I call it double-fault divorce. And it, it does, it, you know, it doesn't confuse me that kids are now confused about what a man and a woman is. They don't have mom at home being a woman, and they don't have dad at home being a man. I, I don't have an answer, but I'm telling you, the beast <laughs> motivates us. The Industrial Revolution, uh, the, the Age of Reason, becoming smarter than God, being able to, 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 to take people and use them like machines... And then there was an age of progress and the age of technology. I think we need to stop and think and ask how we're being shaped and formed by this society in which we live. And ask ourselves, ask ourselves, if we really love the Lamb, if we were motivated by one thing, and that is to give testimony to Jesus Christ, to see people come into the kingdom of God, how could we take all of this reason? How could we take all of this, this progress? I'm not saying progress was bad. I'm not saying reason was I'm not saying wealth was bad. But I'm saying that as long as we live in fear that we'll lose it, and as long as that's what we're pursuing, we're going to be shaped and formed in the image of this world. But if we can open our eyes and see what a great opportunity we have, my goodness, I love the life we live. I love our community. I love where we are. But I think we need to open our eyes and see that there's a, a, a battle going on that we may be missing. And then maybe we can get some more passion again to see people delivered from the darkness that they're in and the, the, the stupidity that, that just moves our society. It's going on. It's around us. But we don't have to succumb to it. We don't have to let it shape us. So, that's sort of my application. I think we got a beast. I think we have two beasts. And uh, you can take the symbolism and put it together however you want. But it motivates us and shapes us. And, oh, yeah, I had some other verses I wanted to read. So, what do we, what do, we do about this? How, how, do we, how do we combat it? Well, I think John had combated it pretty well. And he found himself on Patmos Isle. You know why he was on Patmos Isle? For his testimony of the Lamb. And there's a bunch of souls under the altar. They're martyrs. You know why they're martyrs? 
for the testimony which they had. And you know how we overcome? And now remember, overcoming is not when it all starts. Because it all started a long time ago. We're in the middle of it. We're in the middle of the battle. And how do we do it? The blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony and love not our lives unto death. Hallelujah. I think the call to return to our first love um, was so appropriate that we just need to become compassionate about the Lamb who was slain for us, that we need to see Him for who He is and just cry holy, holy, holy and give ourselves over to Him fully and begin to testify to who he is. Even if it means we lose a little bit of that American life or that wealth or that protection uh, that, that we so enjoy. Does that make sense? All right. So that's how I think we need to apply that middle part of the book of Revelation. Next week we'll go on to the final battle and the, the final victory. But between now and then, when Jesus comes, we need to be passionate about loving the Lamb and testifying to who he is, giving testimony to the truth of Jesus Christ. All right, that's the application uh, that, that I want us to take away from that, that middle part. Any quick questions before we uh, maybe worship with one more song? I bet there's a lot of questions. If you've, if, if you've been chronological or geographical. No questions? Any thoughts? Thank you, thank you. What's that? 